Thank you, Charlie and Mary. That was wonderful. That's a very good question, isn't it? Where would we be? Where would we be? I'm going to be reading this morning from John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, the first 15 verses. If you would follow along with me as I read this. John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Father, we thank you for these words, and I pray that the message this morning will be meaningful and profitable, and that uh, you will be glorified and magnified. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of my personal favorite stories in the Bible. I think a surface reading of this, there may, may not be too much there for the average person, but I have to tell you that after 2,000 years, it still means a lot to me personally. I really identify with this man who's lying by this pool of water. So there is a deeper meaning to this story, and I'd like to, to share that with you, my thoughts on that this morning. Uh, I want you to try to imagine what's actually happening in these verses. Uh, Jesus leaves Galilee and heads south down to Jerusalem to attend a feast. And on his way to the temple, he is found by a pool of water called Bethesda. Now, the word Bethesda is found nowhere else in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word meaning house of grace or house of mercy. Think of the Bethesda Naval Hospital, um, and you will understand why it's a house of mercy. In the 1940s, archaeologists unearthed where Bethesda was, 
where the location was. Their excavation revealed an area approximately 150 feet by 300 feet, which is basically a little more than an acre. This is a large area of land, and all of these sick people are there. We're told that there are five porticos, or five shaded porches there, by this pool of water. Uh, appropriately, five is the number of grace in the Bible. Under these shaded porches were a multitude of people lying down. Now, they weren't lying down because they were tired or they had nothing better to do. They were lying there because they were sick. They were lame. Many were crippled. Many of them were blind, and those that were there, some of them, possibly most of them, were withered, unable to help themselves or help anyone else. And they were there because they believed the legend, the legend that when the water stirred, the first one in would be healed. So basically, they spent all day, every day, waiting on the water to be healed, or to be moved and, and turned and stirred. Uh, so I'm thinking as I'm reading this, what a pitiful sight it must have been to have seen all of these people there, lying there, just begging and wanting to be healed. Um, it was a place of pain and sadness, a place of lost dreams. Um, it was a place of depression, of course, and discouragement, surely. In one form or another, they were incapable of taking care of themselves. Some of these people were blind, couldn't see at all. Some of them were lame and some were crippled. Others were withered, incapable of doing anything. Sadly, sadly, this is a picture of the world we live in today, not physically, but spiritually. Not, not physically, but spiritually. Imagine that atmosphere of desperation. Imagine the despondency and the pain and the frustration these people must have felt. And this is where we find Jesus and his disciples walking among these people. Of the multitude of people, what would he do? What would he do with these people? What could he do? Why not heal all of those poor people? He certainly could if he wanted to. He was capable. Should he have? Of all the hurting people there, he chooses one man to address. I mean, this is an area of, of over an acre, and it's filled. The Bible says there's a multitude of sick people there, and Jesus focuses on this one man, which begs the question, why this particular man? We could say that about our own lives too, right? Why us and not someone else? Why has God chosen us and not others? In many ways, this one man represented the condition of all those who were there, not their physical condition, but their spiritual condition. So what do we know about this particular man as we read these words? Well, we know that he's been sick for a very long time, for 38 years. 38 years. There was a high probability that he was suffering from despair and hopelessness. I know I would be. Believe me, when I'm sick and I... Thank the Lord I don't get sick that often, but when I'm sick, I mean, after three days in the bed, I'm ready to get out of that bed. This man had been in bed for 38 years. I can't even begin to imagine how horrible that must have been for him. He was unable to move. His muscles had atrophied. He was uh, in such a helpless estate. Uh, he needed help just to move from one spot to another. 
Try to imagine how depressed and discouraged this poor man had to be. No doubt he would have been filled with despair. So Jesus comes along and he focuses on this man. He gazes at him. He already knows everything he needs to know about this man. But the important thing is he not only needs to know, he knows what, what this man is dealing with, but he cares. He cares how this man feels and what he's going through. But more importantly, he asks the question, do you wish to get well? Well, let me just say right here, if that were me, if I was a man lying by the pool in Bethesda and I'd been there for 38 years, my response would be unspeakable. (laughs) It would be some sarcastic remark, which I won't delve into at this point. It does appear on the surface to be an odd question. But is it really? Is it really an odd question? I'm thinking even Jesus wouldn't heal someone that didn't want to be healed. So his first question is logical. Do you wish to get well? I think there's another way of saying this question. And if we think about it, he probably is asking this. What he's really saying, are you willing to pay the price for wholeness? Are you willing to give up what you have to be whole again? Jesus' question is actually quite relevant and very important to all of us. When we listen to a message from God's word, do we want to simply be informed? I mean, is that why we're here today? To just be informed and have great knowledge about biblical truths? Or do we want to be transformed? Well, I don't know about you, but when I come to church, I want to leave a different person than when I came. I want to know that the love of God is dwelling in my heart, that I'm trying to live the best I know to live and bring honor to his name. I want to be challenged. So that's the question I would ask. So why would Jesus ask a question like that? Well, maybe because he knows not everyone wants what he's offering. Have you ever thought about that? Not everybody wants what Jesus is offering them. We see that every day. Maybe because he knows most people are trusting in their own determination, in their own abilities. Maybe they're depending on their their own trust and, and the things that they can accomplish on their own. Or maybe because he knows not everyone wants to get well. You do know that, don't you? Not everybody wants to be well. I see three lessons for us in this story. Three lessons that I take to heart. Lesson number one. Choose to allow yourself to be changed. Choose to allow yourself to be changed. No longer living as an invalid, he would now be in a new and unfamiliar world, would he not? It wouldn't be the same. Every day is pretty much the same the way it is now. But if he's made well, if he's changed into a whole human being who can take care of himself and take care of others... uh, I believe he would be in an unfamiliar territory. No more charity. No more gifts. No longer having to beg. He would lose his financial support. This is how he'd live for 38 years. You know, in some third world countries, I'm told that parents of children sometimes injure their child so they will not be able to walk or to 
take care of themselves for the sole purpose of being able to beg to bring money home to the family. So for the first time in his life, he would have to be responsible for himself. Nowadays, it would be like someone getting off perpetual welfare. Not everyone is ready or even willing to be free from welfare. It's hard to give up free. It is. It's hard to give up free. Of course, we all know that nothing is free in this world. Someone is paying for it. He would now have to depend on his own abilities. No one would feel sorry for him anymore. There would be no more pity for all that poor man. He wouldn't be receiving any of that. Think about it. Sometimes there are benefits to being sick. There are. I distinctly remember when I was a child growing up with all those childhood diseases, uh, chicken pox and the mumps and the measles. I had all of that stuff. And I tell you, I love school. I think from nursery school, back in those days, we went to nursery school, and then we went to kindergarten, then we went to first grade. Well, I remember that through the fourth grade, I had missed one, I had missed not one day of school. I loved school. I really enjoyed it. The thought of staying home was like, oh, no, I want to be with all my friends. I want to hear what's going on at school and to play and to be with everybody else. One morning, I woke up, and uh, my mother said, well, you're not going to school today. You got the mumps. And underneath my jaws, I had these big, gross things. I'd never, what is that? And she said, you can't, go to, you can't go to school today. And I said, oh, why not? And she said, well, go look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror. That scared me. <laughs> what is that? And so as a result, I got to experience what it was like to stay home from school. I had never experienced that before. I was probably nine or ten years old. And here I am at home, I'm able to watch all of Captain Kangaroo. I'm thinking, wow, this is great. This is great. And here comes my mother. Now, honey, what would you like to have for breakfast? I I can make you your favorite cinnamon toast with melted butter. We'll put it in the broiler and I'll be... I said, yes, Mom, that'd be great. And so, uh, and I'm laying around in my PJs, you know, I didn't have to get dressed. I, you know, she didn't even make me brush my teeth. I mean, I'm, I'm just like, wow, this is great. This is great. And then at the around lunchtime, she comes back. Now, is there anything, can I fix you? What can I fix you? Any, anything you want, you know. And, and she would prepare just wonderful things for me. And I'm thinking, well, this isn't bad at all. I, I kind of like staying at home. I soon discovered it wasn't bad at all. You know what happened when I got married? Things changed. (laughs) Things changed. Yeah, I want my mommy. No. (laughs) That's another reason why I don't like to get sick. What I'm trying to say is not everyone wants to get better. They don't. Some people have absolutely no desire to be changed. I like the way I am. This is especially true with us who are older. We don't like change. I don't like change. I miss the 1950s. I do. Those were good years for me. Things were so much simpler then, less complicated. No Snapchat, whatever that is. We didn't have that. If you had to swipe your card, that was a bad thing. Back in those days, swipe meant you stole something. We've changed everything. 
Well, change can be hard. Change can be painful. Change can be difficult. And change can hurt. But if we let him, if we let him, and this is the point I want to make, Jesus can and will change us. He will make us into something that we would probably never be able to do on our own. What Jesus is asking this man is the same thing he is asking you and me today. The exact same thing. Do we want to be freed from some secret sin? Do we want to be healed from our addictions? Do we want to be made well from our drugs or our drunkenness or our gluttony or our cheating or stealing or lying or gossip or anger or covetousness or pornography or a thousand other things? Do we want to be changed from that? Or are we happy where we're at? So lesson number one is choose to allow yourself to be changed. Lesson number two, choose to stop making excuses. The sick man's response was not a simple yes or no. Look at verse 7. He avoids the question altogether. (laughs) At this point, Jesus could have said, "Uh, that's not what I ask you. I didn't want to know about your situation with not having someone to lift you up and put you in the water. That's not what I ask you. I ask you if you wanted to be made well, if you wanted to be changed from what you are to something new. At this point, Jesus could have just walked away, I suppose, but he didn't. Thank God. Thank God. I told my Sunday school class this morning, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't say, I quit. I've had enough of this. I'm going home. Aren't you glad? So thankful. So instead of saying yes, he answers with an excuse and starts to complain. Well, I have this this malady and I'm unable to help myself. And John Calvin said this about this particular sick man. The sick man does does what he nearly, uh, we all, all nearly do. He limits God's help to his own ideas and does not dare promise himself that he conceives in, in, his, in his mind. I have discovered that excuses and complaining go hand in hand. I've discovered that. I've also discovered that complaining is a close relative to whining, which seems to always lead to some form of gossip. In other words, excuses and complaining and whining and gossip are all deserving of one another, and they fall into the same category. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but some people actually enjoy complaining. And I want to make sure I don't look at anybody in their eyes this morning. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Some Some people think of themselves as perpetual victims of everything. Have you ever known people like that? It never fails to always be somebody else's fault. We have turned into a society of whiners and complainers. You could say America's new motto is, I'm special, feel sorry for me. (laughs) Feel sorry for me because I've been hurt. Well, who hasn't been hurt? Who hasn't been offended? Who hasn't been left out or forgotten? I'll tell you what, it started for me in the fifth grade. I was the last one chosen for volleyball. <laughs> and then the next sport was, was dodgeball, and I got chosen last for that. I've never gotten over that. <laughs> I'm still angry. I'm holding on to that hurt. 
Sometimes it's easier to hold on to that hurt than to let it go. Would you agree with that? Sometimes it is. It's easier to do that. This man was hurt, and he maybe didn't want to let it go. Stop blaming others. Answer the question. Do you wish to get well? And in verse 14, the Bible reveals that his sickness was probably the result of some sin in his life. Apparently for the past 38 years, he had been reaping what he had sown. And Jesus warns him not to sin or something worse will happen to him. Well, what could possibly be worse than lying by a pool for 38 years unable to move? I can tell you what's worse than that, eternity in hell. That's what's worse. And that's what Jesus is warning here. Choose to allow yourself to be changed. Choose to stop making excuses. And finally, choose not to delay to be changed. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, he had a choice. He didn't have to get up and do that. He could have chosen to ignore Jesus. Could he not have? He could have chosen that. He could have chosen to remain on his pallet and hope that one day some generous, kind person would lift him up when the water was stirred and he could be healed. Or he could choose to trust Christ and obey him. And that's exactly what he did. Thankfully, he chose not to delay to be changed. He chose to trust and obey. We're told he immediately became well. He picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, Jesus knows full well it's the Sabbath, and he tells him to pick up his pallet. Now, why would he do that? I mean, how stinky was that pallet? Why would he want to take that pallet with him? I mean, can you imagine lying on a piece of cloth or whatever it was that he was lying on for 38 years? How bad did that thing reek? It was horrible. Jesus says, and I want you to pick that up, too. You know why? Because it's a Sabbath, and I want you to walk with it under your arm wherever you go. He did that on purpose. (laughs) Because of his obedience, the man who hasn't walked for 38 years is now walking. He had to be excited. Can you imagine? All of a sudden, he's well, he can walk, he can do what he he wants to do. He's he's thrilled, he's he's filled with joy, he's anxious. Anxious to tell everyone he knows, look, I'm walking, it's a miracle. But because he's carrying a pallet, he gets into trouble with the Sabbath police. And what's the first thing he says to them? What is the the first response when they ask him, hey, man, you can't be walking around with that pallet, that's against our law. And what does he do? He blames Jesus. Well, it's not me. I'm not really carrying this pallet. I was told to carry this pallet. And they asked him by whom. He said, well, I don't know who it was, but he told me to do it. And what was a natural response? We're no different. You do know that, right? That's what we do. Our sin nature wants to blame anyone and anything but not ourselves. Boy, do we see that today. Everybody, it's always somebody else's fault. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed Adam. 
Aaron blamed the golden calf. Well, I don't know, Moses. We were just, we just had this big pot and we threw all the gold in there and out comes this calf. We, we go, we don't, it's a miracle. We got to blame somebody. Saul blamed his disobedience on Samuel's delay. Imagine you're driving in your car and you see lights flashing behind you and you think, oh, that's not for me, surely not, and uh, yes, it is. And you pull over and you roll down the window and the officer's standing there and your response is, officer, I wasn't going any faster than anyone else, as if I wasn't breaking the law too. Why'd you pick on me? Because you were breaking the law. But that's what we do. We blame other people. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. I personally believe Jesus loved healing on the Sabbath. This is my personal opinion. I personally believe Jesus healed on the Sabbath just to irritate the Pharisees. I really think that. Because he did a lot of healing on the Sabbath. Why didn't Jesus just wait until the next day to heal him? As I said before, why didn't you just leave that nasty thing there? Don't take it with you. You don't need that anymore. But he didn't do that. He could have just waited till the next day. The next day was Sunday. He could have done it, done it on Sunday and nobody would have said anything. He could have waited a day. He could have said, leave your mat here and pick it up tomorrow. He could have done it any other time, but he picked the Sabbath. Why would he do that? Knowing full well what was going to happen. You don't think that Jesus knew that the, that the Sabbath police were going to stop him and talk to him? Of course he did. Jesus intentionally healed many people on the Sabbath for a reason. He continually and deliberately violated the religious leaders' traditions. And so that begs the question, why would he do that? To make his point. And here's his point. Even today, some 2,000 years later, people are still asking about the Sabbath. What is it about the Sabbath? Actually, Jesus, as well as the Apostle Paul, has already answered that question. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what Paul says about the Sabbath. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come... But the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. Let me read that last part for you because it's very important. It's easy to miss this. Things which are a mere shadow. He's talking about the Sabbath day being, meaning, being a mere shadow of what is to come. What is to come? The Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus. But the substance belongs to Christ. Two years ago... Hank Gregory built a beautiful two-story home for his son and daughter-in-law, Heath and Lori Gregory, and their three beautiful daughters. I was there. I saw the whole thing because we live next door to Heath and Lori Gregory. It's a beautiful home. Now, let me just say this. When it was completed, imagine for a moment, if you could, that Heath and Lori and their three little girls go to the back of the house. Now, our houses face southwest, basically, so that means that in the heat of the day, our backyards are shady. In other words, there's a a big shadow, and of course, they had a two-story, so their shadow goes way back further. So, when they come there to enjoy their new home, they set up housekeeping in the shadow. 
And so I'm walking by, and I'm going to check the mail, and I notice they're all sitting out in chairs, and they've got cots out there in the, in the shadow of the house. And I say, what are you doing? Oh, we just love this house. We're living in the shadow of it. I said, well, wait a minute. You're not moving into the house you're living in? Yeah, we like it out here. It's great. You see my point? The substance is Christ. The shadow is the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Just let that sink in for a moment. How stupid would that be for Heath and Lori and their three daughters? What are y'all doing out here? Oh, we're just enjoying the shadow. Okay, if that's what you want to do. In Mark 2, 27 and 28, Jesus, in fact, plainly says, plainly says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We were not made for the benefit of the law. You do know that, right? The law was made for our benefit. It was made to help us. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest, not the law. There is no rest in the law. Jesus persistently maintained that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus asked an obvious rhetorical question to the Pharisees. He said, is it lawful to do good on, or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save, or, uh, 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 to save or a life or to kill? It was a rhetorical question. He knew the answer to that, and they did too. Of course, you, you can do good on the Sabbath. The criticism from the Sabbath police was focused on their man-made rules. They were not interested in the miracle that had taken place. They didn't care about that man's healing. They didn't want to celebrate with him. So for the first time in 38 years, this man has something to be joyful about. What did the Pharisees do? What is their response to him? Wow, we're really glad to see you're up and well and walking. That's wonderful. That wasn't their concern. Their comment was, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Well, because he was obedient to Jesus, he fell under the Pharisees' condemnation. That happens a lot, you know, today. Later, Jesus finds him and tells him his name is Jesus. But sadly, his first response was to run tell the Pharisees that his name was Jesus. Well, I'm imagining this for a little bit. Please give me a little latitude. (laughs) But I just picture myself in this position. I I haven't walked for 38 years. I'm enjoying this newfound strength and feeling in my legs. I can walk. I I can talk. I can enjoy life. And all of a sudden, I'm told that I can't walk and carry the pallet with me. And so I'm already realizing that I'm already in trouble with the police, with the Sabbath police. And then I I realize and I start thinking, and then I wonder if, uh, wow, life was easier back at the pool. Now I have to worry about keeping the law. I never had to worry about that before because I couldn't really do anything. But now I can. I have to worry about keeping law. Man, if I'm doing this right, am I I'm doing this right or wrong? Sadly, his first response led to these thoughts, I'm thinking. Now I have to get an actual job. I have to pay taxes because I'll be having an income, hopefully. Now I have to mow the yard. I have to take out the trash. 
help to help my wife clean the kitchen. All these things that I've never had to do before. It was, it was kind of nice back in those days. I have to re- be responsible. I have to pull my own weight. No one will feel sorry for me anymore. I won't have any more pity from anyone. I got lots of attention back at the pool. I think I might rather be sick. Did he really want to be healed? It's a valid question, is it not? I'd like to think so. He would now face many, many new challenges as well as opportunities. Sadly, though, he would now be loaded down with the burden of the law. You see, religion doesn't save anyone. What it does do, though, it's a powerful, powerful enough to enslave many people. Many people put themselves under the law needlessly because religion doesn't save anyone. I would encourage each of you to never, ever let religion replace Jesus in your life. Don't let man-made rules and regulations rob you of the joy that Jesus has provided you. No one ever said letting Jesus change you would be easy or comfortable. Because it's not. Living the Christian life is not an easy life. It's not the life of floating down the stream of life with being carefree and not having to worry about anything or anybody. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. Even Jesus said to count the cost of discipleship, did he not? There is a price to be paid. Jesus said these words, and I don't think he was saying this for his health, but he said this to us, we who follow the Lord, take up your cross and follow me. That was not a suggestion. The Christian life is not easy. Are you willing to be healed? Are you willing to change today? Are you willing to allow Christ to change you? His new life was hard, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he never went back to Bethesda. I think he moved on. I think he enjoyed his life after that. I'd like to think so. Despite this man's circumstances in life, he chose the joy of change. By God's grace and our Savior's love, if we are willing, he will change us. If you're struggling today with some kind of addiction or problem in your life, I would suggest that you do what this man did and be obedient and be allowed to change. If you are discouraged or disheartened or depressed today, let Jesus change you, and he will. He will. Walk in his light. Let him reveal the changes that need to be made in you. Are you willing to be changed? If so, let him change you today. Lesson number one, choose to allow yourself to be changed. Number two, choose to stop making excuses. And number three, choose not to delay to be changed. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we come to you thanking you for this special uh, time and we can meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that the, uh, the story that we read this morning will be um, meaningful to every person in this room. I pray that we will understand that the only one that can ever and will ever change us is Christ. 
And uh, if we let you, Lord, we know that you will change us to be all that you want us to be, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our goal, Lord, to be like, to be like you in all that we say and do. So I pray that you will bless us now as we uh, sing our final song, that you will go with us and encourage us this week to be willing when the opportunities arrive for you to change us and be the men and women of God that you desire us to be. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.